Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from several places in scripture, beginning first in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 10. All of these scripture readings are in connection with the topic for this afternoon, which is the 10th commandment from Lord's Day 44, which is you shall not covet. So we find ourselves first in Genesis 4. We'll read verses 1 through 10. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. We'll stop there in the middle of that story. Then we'll turn forward to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, reading verses 13 through 20. I think that's supposed to be 13 through 21. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night, Your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Finally, let's turn to the letter from James, James chapter 4. James is right after Hebrews. 
James 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. So far from Scripture, as we reflect on what we've read together, let's sing from Psalm 4, stanzas 1 through 3. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of Christian doctrine to learn there the basics of the Christian faith. And so we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 44. which is on page 558 of your books of praise. There the question is, what does the Tenth Commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our sin, we should, hate, we should, hate always, we should always hate all sin, and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No, in this life even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live, not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've come to the last of the Ten Commandments, and I hope and pray that all along you, as as I have, have been convicted, shaken up a little bit over the last weeks. And we want to remember that's been our purpose all the way along, to recognize that God has set us free in order that we would live 
as a free people, the way that we were created to be. And as we've then been searching through the Ten Commandments and meditating on them and attempting to also apply them to our lives, I hope and pray that you have also come to see the goodness of these Ten Commandments, the goodness of the God who gave them. Uh, Also that you've come to see areas in your lives that still have work that need to be done. Uh, There are, in all of us, still areas where we find ourselves yet in some bondage to sin, uh, to fallen and sinful ways of thinking. And And I hope and pray that you have, as I have, been on your knees asking God for grace to work through these areas, to reach the freedom in which we were meant to live. Well, I think the last commandment, the tenth commandment, is one of the more challenging ones, both in understanding uh, what it's aiming at, and then also in in recognizing the the issue in our own hearts. The The tenth commandment is, you shall not covet, if you remember from this morning, there's a list of items that we're not to covet, your neighbor's house, wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, etc., Anything that is your neighbor's is how it it finishes. Now, at a first glance, you might look at that and you might wonder, why do we actually need this commandment? It's already implied uh, in in the Eighth Commandment. You shall not covet uh, your neighbor's stuff. That's that's the very heart of the Eighth Commandment. Uh, That's what leads us to steal. Or the Seventh Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, is already there at the heart of that one. So, This entire commandment is implied already in the others. And yet God still gives it to us. And so that's one of the questions we want to be asking ourselves. Why? Why does God give us the Tenth Commandment? And why does God finish the law on this commandment? Why do we need to hear it? Well, we want to start then with a good definition. The Hebrew word that's used in Exodus 20 for covet is, is just the regular Hebrew word for desire. It's the same, the same word. So you can substitute desire here in this commandment. But there is an important qualification in, in this commandment. The commandment is not, you shall not have desires. Right? It's not, even, uh, you shall not have desires for things. Not, it doesn't say you can't desire things. Nor is it even... You shall not have desires for things like what your neighbor has. That comes close, but that's still not what the commandment says. The commandment is you shall not desire your neighbor's things, his house, his wife, etc. So we want to make a distinction here then. Uh, The Tenth Commandment does not say, for example, that you may not drive along the road and, and see a beautiful house and say, you know, someday I'd love to have a house like that. That's not what the commandment is about. That may or may not be a sin, depending on what's going on in the heart. Is there a heart of contentment? Is there a heart of gratitude? Is it a desire that you want and are willing to have apart from God? Or is it one that you would submit to God? Uh, Those are the questions we want to be asking. In other words, there's nothing wrong with setting your mind on something and saying, I would love to have. That, uh, that thing, or, or, uh, or something like that thing. That is, in fact, simply life. You can't get through life without having desires, without setting your mind on, on things that you would like to have. 
Uh, some of you young people are, are busy working hard and saving up money for a car or a truck. And, and you may already have a, a very clear idea of exactly the car or truck that you want to buy. Maybe you even got some inspiration from one of your friends and you think, I'd love to have a truck like that. Is that wrong? No, in itself, that is not what this commandment is about. Uh, some of you are, are busy remodeling your homes or remodeling your kitchens, and, uh, and you also are probably getting inspiration or desires from, from seeing other people's kitchens. You know who you are every time you go to someone's house. You're just walking around saying, hmm, I like that. Because you have a plan, and, and you're building this, this vision of the kind of kitchen you would like to have. Is that what this commandment is about? No, it's not. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, provided... It happens within a content and trusting relationship with God. What this commandment is forbidding is looking at what God has given to your neighbor, the thing that God has given them, and thinking, perhaps subconsciously, I want that. I want the one that they have. I want that house. I want that wife. I want what they have that God hasn't given to me. We read from James. James is the brother of the Lord Jesus. Here's a man who perhaps growing up might have understood what uh, covetousness looks like, perhaps uh, related even to Cain and Abel as he sees his perfect brother growing up, and here he is full of sins and struggles. Probably here's a man who understood uh, covetousness. And he gives us a deeper glimpse in in chapter 4 into what this coveting looks like when you look at it within the confines of the human heart. And what, what makes this letter from James, uh, I find one of the most convicting books of the New Testament, is James has this incredibly accurate, precise understanding of the human heart. So in James 4, he looks out at the congregation to which he's writing, and he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Let me ask you, have you ever been to a church where there were quarrels and fights I'm going to take that silence as as a yes. Are there ever quarrels and fights, even within this church? Or what about, are there ever quarrels and fights within this federation? Well, there I see some red flags coming up. Well, here's the thing. James asks, and he doesn't specify what the issues are. He asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And I can pretty much guarantee that the people who were hearing that in the church that, where this letter was being read, nobody there would have responded, well, James, the truth is I struggle with covetousness. That's not what they were thinking. Uh, they would have said, well, the issue, what you, you want to know what causes fights and quarrels, you've got to ask that brother over there. That brother did this, and that group is over there doing that. And we don't think they're Christians, and so on and so forth. That's how the the reaction typically goes. And undoubtedly, undoubtedly, some of those accusations are probably true. Uh, in, In any church, there are sins, there are mistakes, there are groups that are doing things that might not be entirely uh, right. So some of those accusations are going to be true, but what James is saying is the issue is not the issue. What's causing the fights and quarrels? It's not the issue. Instead, it is covetousness. Uh, The the issue that gets you upset, the, the reason that you get riled up, is not the issue. 
The reason you get riled up is because you have desires at war in your hearts. You're coveting and you're committing murder. That's what he says. Uh, You may think that the issue is the issue, but I'm here to tell you, notwithstanding what you think, the real issue is covetousness. We looked at the uh, sixth commandment a few weeks ago, which is you shall not murder. Here James references murder. And we saw there from Scripture also that this commandment doesn't just refer to taking someone's life, uh, but it also refers to the roots of murder, hatred, anger, uh, revenge, uh, failure to love, and also envy. See, here's the thing. The fact that one brother over there is, is doing whatever he's doing does not explain the fact that you are eager to attack his character and reputation, that you are willing to talk about him behind his back, uh, that quarrels and fights are coming up in the church. The, the fact that one person sinning doesn't explain the quarrels and fights. So what James is saying is the real issue is you have desires that aren't fulfilled and it's leading you to murder. Again, I don't, I don't write the mail. I just, I just deliver it. And importantly, it comes at my house uh, first. The text here is teaching us a couple issues about, about coveting. These are really hard points to swallow and, and to think about. So hear them clearly. Number one, you don't always realize it when you're doing it. You don't always realize you're coveting when you're coveting. And number two, coveting is not only desiring something that God has not given us, but also resenting the fact that God has given it to someone else. It's not just desiring something, it's resenting that someone else has that blessing. It's worth mentioning the very first murder that was ever committed was when Cain murdered Abel. And why did he murder him? It was envy. It was covetousness. And think about this. Cain didn't murder Abel in order to take something from him. That wasn't even the issue, that he wanted what Abel had. It was that he resented the fact that Abel had it, and he didn't. It's envy. This is why I made the distinction then at the very beginning. Uh, Cain could have seen God's favor to Abel and said, I want that favor as well. And that would have been a good desire. Uh, It would have been a good reaction. In fact, it's exactly the point that the Lord himself makes when he talks to Cain. He says, if you do well, will you not also be accepted? So he's appealing to Cain's desire to be accepted. But what Cain did is resented the fact that Abel had what he didn't. And so instead of striving for that thing, he hated the person. And so he murdered Abel. Well, that is what covetousness looks like. And I would submit to you, if we're listening to James, that it's much more subtle and much more prevalent than we might think. And let me just pause and, and let's remind ourselves of our, our whole purpose here in the Ten Commandments once again. Our purpose here is because God, our Father, loves us and wants us to live free from sin, including the sin of covetousness. So maybe there's a few of you out there that are still upset about the fact that I said fights and quarrels in this federation might be related to covetousness and not, not the issue. And maybe we've all got these inner lawyers already rising up within, 
within our hearts to, to try and make the case to prove that we're not guilty of, of the sin that we're being accused of. Let's leave that aside. We're not here to prove that we're not guilty of this sin. We're here to, 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 to recognize uh, insofar as we may be guilty. And we recognize we certainly are guilty, at least in some measure. So we should let James speak to us here and have a soft and tender heart that's ready to, to hear what James would say. Uh, and, and every one of us, myself included, has room to grow in, in freedom from this probably the most subtle of all uh, sins. So let's stop, uh, resist the temptation to justify ourselves, and, and let's start examining ourselves. That's what James would have us do. Let's go back to our definition then of, of covetousness. Coveting then is not just desiring what God has given to our neighbor, but also resenting the fact that, that God has given it to them. It's not just, you know, I like the Joneses' house. It's, I hate the Joneses. And I may not even know that it's because they have that house. I can't live with the fact that the Joneses are there and they've got that house and I don't. Now the Tenth Commandment presents us with sort of a list just to get our our brains uh, going. It's obviously an incomplete list. It's there to get us started in, in thinking about this. And that's why it, of course, ends with anything that is your neighbor's. So it's anything that we desire and which we resent the fact that God has given it to them and not to us. Uh, where we're thinking it's not fair that they have that and we don't. So the, the 10th commandment begins with houses and that's because houses are indicative of our, our general wealth and, and financial well-being. That was true then in Israel and it's, it's true now. Now, your, when I say your house is indicative of your financial well-being, it, it may be lying about your financial well-being, but it's, it's telling a story about your financial uh, condition. And, and that's why you know, so many people in our day are up to their necks in debt because they're living in houses they can't afford because they're coveting the houses that their neighbors have. So it begins with houses. Who has never been uh, jealous of of someone else's financial well-being. That person just seems to have it so easy with money, and here I am struggling all the time. That's probably the most common form of covetousness. Well, we can keep going. It mentions also your neighbor's wife. Conversely, of course, for the women, your neighbor's husband. And, and you could even extend this to your neighbor's marriage in general, uh, where we're asking, God, why is my marriage so hard? And that person's marriage is so easy. Uh, why does my spouse have all these problems and their spouse seems to be uh, just fine? They have a, a beautiful, sweet marriage and, and all we get are, are these, these struggles, these problems. And that too is covetousness. So again, it's not just desiring something you don't have that your neighbor has, like a sweet marriage, but it's also being filled with bitterness and resentment over the fact that your neighbor has it and you don't. The commandment mentions oxen, donkeys, servants. In, in our day, I would think the equivalent would be tractors or, or cars or tools. And that's what all of those things are. They're different means of generating uh, wealth. And, and you can imagine what this is like for the Israelite farmer who's, who's hearing this, uh, who, who, let's say, owns a single donkey and it takes him all week 
to plow his field. And he looks over at his neighbor who has two full-grown oxen and manages to plow the entire field in a day. And, and the neighbor would, or the man would be thinking, that's not fair. You can't help but have that resentment. How is that right? That I put in all this work, seven times as much work as my neighbor, for the same result. His life is so much easier. That's what it's getting at when it speaks of your oxen, donkey, and servants. By the way, this is as good a time as any to make the point that one of the features of covetousness is that it robs us of contentment. We may have a good thing from God and not be and, and yet be upset and bitter because someone else has a better thing from God. Uh, if everyone had to work seven days to plow their field, that man would be just fine. It's the fact that someone else gets it a lot easier that makes him upset and bitter. Uh, that's how you can spot covetousness for what it is. Uh, when seeing someone else's blessings robs you of your uh, contentment, gratitude, or joy, that is covetousness. Now, how many of you have had this? I've had this. Uh, where you, you get a great deal on something. You buy something and, and you got a really good deal. And you're going home. Uh, the marching band is playing. You won. You got the, the best deal. And, and you found out later someone else actually got a better deal. And all that joy is gone. doesn't matter. You paid the same money. Nothing changed, but someone else got a better deal. And now uh, you're, you're upset. You see the insanity there in covetousness. It's, it's, you never lost anything, but someone else had something you didn't. It's one of the points the Lord Jesus also made. He told the parable of, of uh, some hired servants working in a field, and, and each of them agreed for a day's wages for a day's worth of work. Uh, a denarii for, uh, or a talent, that is, for, for their work. And, and they were happy with it until they saw that someone else got hired at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and then still got the full day's wages. The, the, the payment they loved at first, they were happy with at first, content with, suddenly they're bitter and angry about someone else got the better deal. That is covetousness. Let's keep going. The commandment includes anything. That is, your neighbor. So what else might we include in, in the list of things about which we covet? Maybe good grades in school? Maybe uh, popularity, the fact that someone has, has more friends? Uh, maybe the fact that, you know, that person over there just always seems to say and do the right things, and I just can't do that. Or good looks? Or physical fitness? Uh, sports abilities, uh, smarts, uh, quality of someone's family life, uh, riches. Again, that goes back to houses. And, and again, I have to emphasize, the, the issue here is not desiring those things. It's okay to desire more friends or, or, or better looks or, or greater physical fitness or whatever it may be. Uh, the issue is resenting the fact that someone else has them. It's a lot more subtle uh, than, than we might think. And, and going back to James, what James is calling us to do, this is the hardest part, is to learn to be brutally honest with ourselves when covetousness is really the issue. It's the one thing that, uh, the, one thing that the human heart excels at above everything else is self-deception. So you might go through this list again and think of 
those who have good grades or more friends or, or good looks or better physical fitness or sports abilities or smarts. And, and you say, I'm not covetous of that person. I just don't like them. You know, it's, it, it's self-deception. Uh, all we know is, I hate that person who just happens to have a better home, better marriage, better personal relationships, whatever it is. We, we convince ourselves, my, my dislike for that person has nothing to do with my desire for what they have or my resentment that they have it. How many of you have heard this? It's not that I'm jealous that he's better at sports than me. I just don't like him because he thinks he's so cool. Ever heard that one? Ever said that one? Or It's not that I'm jealous that she's prettier or more popular or happier than me. I just don't like her because she's so stuck up. That's covetousness. Or it's not that I'm jealous that that person has a better relationship with God. I just think they're so self-righteous, said Cain right before he murdered his brother. It's very, very easy to deceive ourselves on this point. And, and the, the reality is we can always find a good reason, or good, a reason to dislike our brother or sister. All of us are sinners. None of us are perfect. It's, it's easy if you want a reason to hate them. It's easy enough to find one. Uh, we can always come up with some plausible explanation for our, our coldness towards them or our, our tendency to, to criticize them. And, and it can be a reason that has nothing to do with our own lack of contentment. But it's self-deception. That's what James is saying. The issue is your covetousness. Uh, the issue is our jealousy. And, and so we need to learn, as we hear James on this, we need to learn to, to tell ourselves, who am I kidding? It has everything to do with my jealousy. It is about envy. It is about bitterness against God for what God has given to someone else. That's exactly what the issue really is. But now let's take this to our relationship with God. Because that's where James also goes with this. And that's the heart of the matter. Uh, the issue behind our covetousness is is not even uh, primarily the breakdown between us and our neighbor, but even more the breakdown in our relationship between us and God. That's what James says. Uh, you desire, verse 2, and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Uh-oh. Here's the real issue, isn't it? You don't have because you're not asking. I'm bitter against my neighbor who has blessings that God has given to them that God hasn't given to me, and I've never even asked God for those blessings myself. Well, that's where the issue is. Why am I not asking God? And see, this commandment doesn't come from a cold lawgiver. It comes from our Father who loves us and who wants us to have relationship with Himself. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus Himself uh, teaches us? Matthew 7, verse 9. Which of you, if his son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will, you give, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Isn't that the issue? Jesus' point is, why then aren't you asking your Father? Your, your father loves to give you good gifts. He owns the entire universe. He could give you whatever it is 
that you are desiring. Uh, he could, if, if he wanted, he could make you physically fit or attractive. He could make you rich. It's not that God is short on resources. He could give you an easier spouse. He could fix his or her flaws. Uh, I'm not saying he will. God knows what is best for you. But the question you need to ask is, have you even started by asking your father who loves you? The things that you're so jealous of that you're willing to hate and slander and criticize your neighbor for having, but you're not even asking God for them yourself, uh, they show that the issue is a breakdown in our love for God. It's not wrong in itself to desire a bigger house or a better portfolio. It's not wrong to desire improvement in your marriage or whatever else the issue may be. Are you asking God for those things? And if not, then why not? Now, some of us might uh, say rightly, um, I do ask. I, I have asked God for those things, and, and God, God isn't giving them to me. Well, James uh, has an answer for that as well. Sometimes we ask and don't receive because we're still asking with the wrong motives. And James is not saying, of course, that you know, every time we ask God for something and He doesn't give us, it means there's something wrong with our motives. That's not James's point. And, of course, he has a specific situation in mind here. Uh, so it may be that our, our motives are pure. You think of the Lord Jesus who prayed, Father, remove this cup from me. And the Father said, no, that, that was not uh, what was best for Him. Sometimes God has better plans for us in the midst of our afflictions than we might have for ourselves. Uh, But when it comes to envy, the heart of the question still is, how is my relationship with my Father? Is my heart so aligned with His desire that I desire the things that He desires? Or am I thinking only of my own desires apart from Him? Do we have? This is another question that James wants us to be asking ourselves and, and to be honest about. Do I have pure desires in the things that I'm asking from God? Uh, Do I see God, to put it another way, as a means to my ends, or do I see the things that I want as a means to His ends? What is my heart before God? Do I love and trust my Father? See, coveting, coveting begins with discontentment before God. It's saying, God, I don't like the life that you have given me. It begins with wanting what God doesn't want for us. It begins with a heart that's already far from God. And so, brothers and sisters, this this last commandment really takes us right back to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods but me. The highest and greatest and ultimate purpose for which we are created, if you remember from the first uh, sermon on the Ten Commandments, is to know God to love Him, and to live with Him. In other words, for relationship with Him. We were made to be deeply, fully satisfied in Him. So the question James would have us ask is, am I walking with Him with respect to my desires? If I am, then I will know that He is capable of providing me with whatever I need and whatever I desire. He loves to do good to me. And if so, if God, if, God, uh, doesn't, if God loves me, but God doesn't provide the thing that I want, then it's either because it wouldn't be good for me, or because it wouldn't be good for me right now because of the reasons why I want it. 
Those are the reasons that James sets forth. So the question we need to ask is, how is my relationship with the Father? Uh, we read earlier from, from Luke 12 as well. Uh, Jesus was teaching the, the people, and this man yells out from the crowd, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we don't get to know whether this man had a point. We can assume he probably did. Let's say his brother isn't dividing the inheritance with him. But Jesus responds, be on guard against covetousness. Because the issue is, where is your relationship with God with respect to those things that you want? And so he tells this parable of a man whose crops did well, and he says to himself, well, what will I do? I will build bigger barns, I will store all my crops, and I will eat, drink, and be merry. And God says to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, and then whose will your possessions be? And the conclusion that Jesus gives to the parable is, so it is with the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, There are many different things we could take away from this parable, but the question that I want to ask is, what's actually wrong? What's wrong with the man in Jesus' parable? Is it a sin to have big barns? Is that a problem? Well, there are two things that were missing in this man's perspective. Number one, he couldn't see past himself. He just couldn't see past himself. All, the, the only person you will find mentioned in that parable is, is himself. There's no concern for his neighbor. And more importantly, there's no concern for the will of God. And number two, so number one, he couldn't see past himself. Number two, he couldn't see past this life. Not once does it occur to him what will inevitably happen immediately after this life. That's the point the Lord Jesus makes. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's also at the root of covetousness. It's believing that my life is about me, and it's about what I can gather for myself in this life. And so when someone else has something, it may not just be possessions. Again, it may be a marriage. It may be popularity. It may be something else. When someone else has it and I don't, my entire world is offended by that because it's all about me and it's all about now. There's an old adage that says, burial shrouds have no pockets. You get the point. You can't, there's no, they don't put pockets in there because there's no point. There's nothing you're going to take with you into eternity. Uh, something else. This sin, the sin of covetousness, does not discriminate on the basis of age. Uh, some of the most covetous people may well be elderly people. Uh, looking back on their life, angry that other people had it better. Angry that someone else had a fuller life or a bigger family or an easier retirement uh, or that someone else is in better health while they are given all of these ailments. Uh, this sin does not discriminate on the basis of age. It discriminates on the basis of faith. Uh, again, the question is always, from the beginning of your life to the end, where is your relationship with your father? The best way to not become a, a, a covetous old person is to not be a bitter, covetous young person. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12, remember your creator in the days of your youth. So this commandment is, is fundamentally, you can see then, not primarily even about our stuff uh, or our neighbor's stuff as much as it is about our heart before God. 
Let me just close by making a couple comments about the, the Lord's Day in the Catechism. Uh, you notice that, oddly enough, the Lord's Day doesn't actually say anything about coveting. I don't know if you noticed that. So here's the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. And the Lord's Day never once mentions coveting in its explanation of this commandment. Uh, instead, it wants to talk about any desire that we might harbor against any of God's commandments. And the reason for that, the right to do that, the reason for that is because this commandment is fundamentally about all of our desires, not just for our neighbor's stuff, but our deepest desires. Coveting is having desires that come from a heart that's not right with God, that's not true to our maker. That's the point that James uh, makes as well. It comes down to the desires of your heart and the relationship with God. Uh, What's the greatest commandment of all, after all? It is, as the Lord Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or to put it uh, another way, you shall know God, love Him, and live with Him. That's what life is about. It's knowing God, loving Him, and living with Him. Well, one of the reactions that uh, we should all have, that I hope you've also had as we've worked through then the Ten Commandments over the last weeks, is, is we should have a deeper sense of awareness in how deep these sins run within us and, and really how far we still are from keeping them perfectly. Uh, I'm so far still from loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's why question answer 114 is also there. It's there to ask, after we've gone through the Ten Commandments, we've seen our sin, we've seen uh, substantial areas that still need work, it's there to ask, well, is there any hope then? If I'm a Christian and I've loved God for 20 years or 40 years or 60 years, and I still have all these areas that need work, is there any hope? Uh, maybe, Maybe you want that desire. It sounds maybe wonderful to have that relationship with God where covetousness and wrong desires aren't there to plague, uh, to plague you and to rob your, your freedom and your joy. Uh, but you, you look honestly at your life and you conclude it's still there. These sins aren't going away. Well, the Catechism is honest about this. Uh, the reality is even the holiest still have only a small beginning of this obedience. The more you grow in holiness the more you realize how far there is yet to go. Nevertheless, hear that word, nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live, not only according to some, but all of God's commandments. In other words, yes, with the Holy Spirit, there is hope. Uh, There's lots of hope. And you can look around, even in this church, and point to real life Examples of people who have grown with the Lord as they've walked with the Lord over many years. Get to know them. Start learning from them. And so then question and answer 115 asks, uh, in conclusion, why do we do this to ourselves every time? Why do we go through the Ten Commandments only to, to hit that moment of despair as we say, uh, there's, there's no way I'm ever going to deal with all the sin in my life? Well, two simple reasons. Number one, so that throughout our life we would get to know ourselves rightly, so that we would run to the Creator that God has sent us. We will only love Him if we know what He saved us from. We need then to get to know ourselves well. If we don't have relationship with God, or if we we barely have relationship with God, we need to know that. 
We will not deal with that until we see it. We need to be aware of where we're at. Otherwise, we'll simply be deceived. That's the whole point. Sin is self-deluding. And we will end up being either self-righteous or just totally unaware of our sinful condition. And then we won't do anything about that. Uh, and, and to do that is to remain enslaved. It's to be set free by God, only to fall right back into slavery. Well, there's only one place where there ever will be forgiveness and release from the bondage of sin, and that's at the cross of Christ. And that's what the whole series in the Ten Commandments is designed to, to do to us, to bring us there to the cross of Christ. We turn to Christ seeking not just forgiveness, certainly seeking that, seeking forgiveness for our sins, especially our failures to, to know God, love Him, and live with Him, but also to seek His power to begin living a new life with a new heart. And this is possible by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit, we can begin to change. That's the one reason. And then the second reason we keep studying these commandments is so that while praying to God for that grace, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until one day we will reach the goal of perfection. In the, in, in, uh, after this life, People will, will be perfected in one of two ways, and it will depend on the direction and desire of their life. If they are working towards holiness, by the grace of God, by coming to the cross, God will give them holiness. If they are running away from it, if they are ignoring it, then they will find uh, themselves without any hope at all in the depravity of their souls. After this life, we will reach the goal of perfection. So know then that this is not a hopeless struggle. Uh, The catechism is honest that perfection is only going to come after this life. But in this life, there is real growth. And that growth is deeply rewarding. It's a rewarding growth. It has a feedback that, that comes with greater blessings still. As we begin to live free, we find the blessings of being free. It's the breaking of chains that have held us in bondage, the discovery of freedom that already happens now. And that's an amazing and it's a joyful experience for every Christian who experiences it. Yes, yes, it's a hard struggle against sin. And sometimes, perhaps like right now, a painful struggle, but it is also an incredibly joyful struggle. Growing in holiness, growing nearer to God over the years with much hard work is, uh, and, and beginning to see God reflecting in our lives is better and more deeply rewarding than any pleasure this world can offer. That is the goal, the struggle, the fight of the Christian life. So brothers and sisters, do Do as you reflect on the commandments. Do be honest with yourselves. Do search your hearts. Do confront the desires that are there and be uh, truthful about them. But also continue to pray and continue to to experience the joy of witnessing God's work in your life. Uh, You may not be where you want to be, but you can praise God and rejoice that you're not where you once were. Uh, God is working within you. We saw this in Philippians as well, both to will and to work, to, to, to cause you to live free and to break those bonds so that you may live in relationship, in intimate relationship with Him.
That's our hope. That's our prayer. That's God's promise through Jesus Christ. Amen.